we have to recognize we're a radical religion. Especially nowadays, we try to get along well with the Catholics, the Protestants, the Jews, the Muslims, Buddhists, everybody. We're sort of part of the Christian tradition and uh, they're all our brothers and sisters and that's good. And I, I agree with that. I think that's the only way we can be influential is to form alliances with people who will everywhere. But in the Catholic Church, they categorize people as either people, as people who are variants of Christianity and those who are actually heretics, that is basically non-Christian. And Mormons are in the non-Christian category. And it's because, as the Catholics say in their statement on this subject, uh, it's because we really work in an, another matrix. It's not really the same intellectual matrix. And at the heart of it is the idea that matter is eternal, that God did not create matter. It, matter is as eternal as he is. And he simply is a craftsman who puts together worlds, earths and heavens, as we learn in chapter one of Moses. And that means God is not another being outside the universe creating it. He's inside the universe. We are one with him. And what leads us to the possibility that we can become God-like, we can become gods ourselves, because he's not a totally different species, a different order of being. That is deeply radical. And I don't think we've begun to work out the differences because we've been so eager to say, well, we're pretty much like everybody else. We're not like everybody else. We're a radical religion. Time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. I asked and he said yes. We're going to visit with Richard Bushman and talk about five things about the prophet Joseph Smith. Now, if you have not become a Patreon saint of The Cultural Hall, please do so. What is taking you so long? You could actually send me an email, contact at theculturalhall.com, and you could tell me this is what's taking me so long. We have started uploading all of our old episodes, and you are able for now, to get them both on the website and through Patreon. But in a day not too far distant, uh, you will no longer be able to get those those episodes via the website. It will only be via our Patreon site. So, so what does that mean? You need to become a Patreon saint. Why not? You listen every week. You listen to all the episodes we do. Very soon, we are going to be the most prolific show available in podcast form about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that looks at it from a pro perspective, right? Man, that's a lot of qualifiers, but it is. We are going to be the top of the heap, and that's coming. Why not hitch your wagon to a winning horse? Why don't you? All right, that's uh, patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Let's get this episode started with Richard Bushman. All right, Richard Bushman, uh, let's talk about Joseph Smith. When we chatted before, I just got the opportunity to learn all about you. It was so cool. I shared uh, your interview with a lot of people who said, I had no idea about that with Richard Bushman, uh, whether it be how your wife wasn't interested in you when you guys first got together and all the things that you've done over the years. But I knew that I would be remiss if we didn't take the opportunity to talk about Joseph Smith. And so I hit you up and I said, hey, let's do five things that everybody either needs to know or should know about the prophet Joseph Smith. And you said, yeah, I'd, I'd be more than willing to do that. And here we are. So 
I'll follow you wherever you think we should start, and then uh, I'll, I'll ask the questions along the way. What's number one? Well, I would uh, recast it a little bit. I'm not sure these are the big five of things everyone ought to know. Probably those we all know already, but uh, uh, five things that are interesting to know. Okay. That had a little depth to his life and our sense of his personality. I will begin with uh, people sometimes ask me, um, were you ever shaken as you were studying about Joseph Smith and found things that disturbed you? And the answer is yes. And the thing that disturbed me was to discover he had a temper. There's um, some diaries that are tell quite a bit about his life at certain stages. And uh, he didn't like to be crossed. He was crossed, he would would lash back. Uh, When he was leading the science camp to try to recover Jackson County, he uh, had an underling or, or someone who was sort of second or third in command who disobeyed his orders. And he got furious at him. The guy claimed he threw a frying pan or a bugle at him and uh, took him to, when they got back to Kirtland, took him to court and accused him of behavior that was unfitting a man of God. And um, there are other instances like that. Even his friends admitted he had a temper. And um, uh, being a moderate man myself, I was a little uncomfortable with that. But then I got another view of him. And I began to see that though he would get angry at people, he was quick to forgive. And when they came to him, if they trying to make peace again, he would take them right back and just encircle them with love. And I realized that what is really true of him, he was a man who wore his emotions on his sleeve. He was unhappy with something about you. He would let you have it right straight. But if um, you proved your loyalty and were of service, he would just envelop you in love. And so he just filled the air. And that's, that's almost the definition of a charismatic person, someone whose emotions are just right on the surface. They just fill the room with uh, strong feelings. So uh, that's kind of a hard person to live with sometimes, but it's also magnetic. It's fascinating. And people were fascinated by Joseph Smith, even his enemies admitted he had a, a magnetism about him. It's hard to resist. So, so with that, how come do you think, I mean, we know that he was uh, jovial is the word that comes to mind as well, right? That he would, that he would sort of joke around. We hear about him being kind of reprimanded for, for being not necessarily like a prankster, but certainly had a sense of humor and was charismatic in that way. And that didn't cause you to have a problem, or maybe it did. Maybe I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but how come on the other side of it, that anger, do you think it's because it's when we envision that person of God that we don't see that that person would be that way or because it's so different from your temperament that you struggled with it? I think it's both. You know, prophets historically have been quite rambunctious and sometimes quite offensive. But we, it's really, um, since the 19th century, we think the ideal person is a gentleman, person of kindness and restraint. And that's become a new cultural ideal. It was not the ideal of King Henry VIII or all sorts of monarchs back through time. So it's really a modern view of uh, what is a good person. But if we look historically, we had lots of prophets like Joseph. Okay. 
I, that that is a, a, a definitely a thing to consider. How did you find? So as you found more about him and found your way through it, were you was the resolve just well? He was a charismatic person, and so with that, you get the yin and the yang, the the humorous and the and the yeah. short temper, and and just and kind of became settled with it. Yeah, I, I you know I I thought historically I I have a certain temperament, and uh, but I'm not really in a position to judge everybody else who lived because I would like them to be like me. You know, you got to have a little breadth of sympathy towards differing types of people. So all right, so that is that is number one is that we that we recognize that the Joseph Smith you know might have had a little bit of a temper as documented. What's number yeah. What's number two? Well, this is in the same vein, having to do with his temperament. I think it's especially clear later in his life that he was given to melancholy. He's like Abraham Lincoln or William James. He could be quite ebullient and overflowing with good spirits when he was with people and he loved to have people around him. But when he was alone, when he had to go uh, in to retreat, for example, when his enemies were after him, mm-hmm. he, he would get blue. And Emma recognized this and she knew how to manage it. She just would console him and, and help him along. And actually it's her calling in the 25th uh, section of the Doctrine and Covenants directed to her that one of her callings not just a quality, but a calling was to console her husband because I think he needed it. And it was a little hard on it, him because the on her, because the way he would deal with his men melancholy was surround himself with people. He liked to have people around him. And Emma makes this kind of uh, uh, reticent comment that um, she never gets to eat alone with Joseph Smith because he always wanted to surround himself with people. So he would like to have people at the table where he could talk to them and sort of keep his spirits up. By the end of the life, his life, he was thinking a lot about death. And he became quite concerned where his tomb would be, because he wanted to be buried near his friends, so that when he would come up out of the grave, he would be able to greet them and grasp them by his hands. paid quite a bit of attention to the right place to be buried. So there's that side of him that doesn't show up much, you know, his revelations or so on, but it did show up in the accounts of his life. So so with that, as I hear that from sort of a, a 21st century, you know, we, we like to diagnose a lot of things, right? When I when I hear someone like that that's a, that is uh, hesitant to be sort of alone, alone with their thoughts, or alone with just another person, like the thought that comes to my mind is maybe someone who would be either, I guess colloquially we say, you know, they have demons, right? They're afraid to be alone with their demons, or they there's not a, a tremendous amount of like depth that they can that they can be alone, that they can be all right with who they are if they always have to have other people around because it sort of deflects what they may have to deal with in their own mind, like the demons in their mind. Do you think that that, do you think that that's it? I think it's the opposite. Well, I think that this melancholy deepened his soul, made him seem, I mean, the people I cited are Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is not a deep, a a shallow person. Mm. He's very deep. It leads them to explore. And you think, you know, the 121st, 122nd, sections of the Doctrine and Covenants where he's in Liberty Jail 
and cries unto God, when will you come and rescue us? Why are you leaving us alone? So I think it, it gave him a, a more compelling personality, anything but a shallow view of life. It's also worth noting he also had seen a tremendous amount when we look at the things, the woes of our lives, and we think, oh, come on, is there a God? Is God there? I mean, he, from losing multiple children to a brother to persecution to jail to, you know, mobs and all of these things that he had to, I mean, he had a considerable amount to be sad, melancholy, you know, uh, struggling or working through as well. Yeah. Well, and it could have gone back to his youth when he had that horrible operation, you know, where they chipped the bone out of his leg without uh, any anesthesia. You know, he, he had, and it wasn't an easy life. You know, those were, they were poor farmers working, working, working. And um, so there were a lot of hard things about his life. Are there times documented, you said that Emma doesn't ever really get Joseph alone. Are there times documented either by Joseph or by Emma where they actually were able to be alone, that he spent a season and they were able to be together and add some depth in in their relationship because of that solace? I think so, yeah. He he trusted her more than anyone. He was the one to whom he he confessed his uh, sorrows. And fortunately for us, it appears in his letters, as so we get a picture of it. And, um, you know, when he's stuck for a month on his way home uh, with Newell K. Whitney from Jackson County, because Newell K. Whitney broke his leg and Joseph had to attend him, he wrote these plaintive letters to Emma, saying every day he would go out into the woods to pray to God and to mourn the, the weaknesses of his soul and his great need for God to bless him. And then said, all I can do is to put my trust in Christ. Christ alone redeems me. So he turned his his sometimes moments of despair into a, a dependence on Christ and the atonement. So it became, it fed into his religious impulses, all of the sorrows that he felt. All right. I, I, uh, I love this conversation. I'm interested to see where you take us next. Well, it's uh, connected to that. I'll, it's, I'll count it as number three, but it's, uh, it's um, a link to what I just said. You know, when we discovered this um, second and early description of the first vision, it was discovered in the 1960s. We call it now the 1832 version written in his own hand for the most part or dictated. And it talks about why he went to God. And in this version, he adds to the picture, the one we're familiar with, the 1838 version in the Pearl of Great Price, talks about his uncertainty where the church, true church was. And he had one question, what is the true church? But in this 1832 version, he adds that he was concerned for the state of his soul and worried about whether he was worthy before God. And the first words that are spoken in this account come from Christ saying, Joseph, thy sins are forgiven thee. So that makes us aware that as a young man, forgiveness was important to him. And that comes up again in 1817, when he, or when he's 17 in 1823, 
And the reason he goes and prays is he wonders if God has rejected him because of his ills. And the first words of Moroni says is your sins are forgiven. And even in the Kirtland Temple, at that glorious vision that he and Oliver Cowdery shared, Christ begins his statement by saying, thy sins are forgiven thee. So it leads you to see that Joseph Smith was working at his own salvation with fear and trembling, just as he was receiving revelations and leading the church. And that forgiveness, you know, is right at the heart of the restoration from the very beginning. I know with later discussions of him asking to be forgiven that we talk about, like that he might have been uh, light-minded or light-hearted, or he hasn't done the things that God had called him to do, and so he had to call himself to repentance, and then as he visits with, with God and, and God forgives him. Is there any, is there any um, talk written or otherwise about what he might have been so worried about that as a you know 14-year-old boy that he could have possibly done that he would be worried about? Or is it just an awareness of his own imperfections? Uh, it's very unclear. You know, you can guess um, all the problems uh, teenage boys have, but uh, he spoke of it as being too lighthearted, too uh, frivolous in the company he kept. So I think there may have been kind of an oscillation between the jovial Joseph Smith who loved talking and then regretting and fearing that he engaged in light-minded behavior or joked and talked too much. So that may be one of the polarities of his personality. I love this so much, Richard. I'm, ha I'm having such a good time. I hope that you're enjoying yourself because I just, you know, the fact that you would let me talk to you one time was great. The fact that we're able to visit another time and I'm just able to, I could just sit and listen to you talk about anything really and just in enjoy myself. I just wanted to stop real quick and tell you thank you. You are so generous with what you've done um, specifically for me, but for so many within the church and within the world in the book that you've written, in the lectures that you've given, in the, the wisdom of the years that you've had uh, studying and researching and all these things. I hope, yeah, I just hope that you know how many people are grateful for, for the life that you have led and, and the information that you have shared. Yeah. Well, you're very generous to say that. It, it does mean a lot to me to feel like I've connected with my people. You know, they're Mormons are, are my people. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's uh, been a great pleasure and a joy to me. Let me ask you something. Does that make you uncomfortable when I compliment you? Because it makes me uncomfortable like anything in the world. Yeah, it does. It does make me <laughs> All right, Richard. Let's, we, can, we can get back to the intellectual stuff. Let's go to number four. Okay. Well, sometimes people ask me, what is the lead character trait of Joseph Smith that made him effective as a prophet. And, uh, you know, there are many possible answers. I don't have any idea what the number one would be. But the one that uh, struck me writing the book was resilience. Uh, this is a guy who, life is not easy for him. And yet God kept loading things on him to do. I mean, you think of uh, June in 1828, just lost 116 pages. His wife has just had, had a baby who dies. And then the Lord rebukes him for giving way to Martin Harris. So there he was really beaten down on a number of fronts. This big project that had been the purpose of his life for years 
translating, thwarted, and because of his own mistake as he saw it. And yet he didn't give up. He went right back to it, went to those plates, kept on translating, and did it day after day after day in the hot weather till he finally got it done. So that's a huge project, which he gets done, uh, works around, gets it published. Then what does he have to do? He has to organize a church, which he does. And then in the summer of 1830, he begin to make comments about, well, we've pretty much got what we want now. We have a church. Let's just live it and enjoy it. And what happens? He receives a revelation. You've got to go found a society. You're not just going to be a church. You got to build Zion. You have to build a city. You have to gather people in that city. How in the world this inexperienced guy has to take on this huge task? And then, you know, all he meets is one problem after another. He gets people together. They go out there, but they fight with one another. Then, after having put all his chips on this building the city, they're expelled from the holy land. They're expelled. And what is he to make of that? What's God doing to him? For you know, three or four months, he just didn't get a revelation. He was just baffled. He didn't know what to do. But finally, you know, he gets his spirits back together again. He gets science camp going, makes an effort. But when he goes out there, the effort comes to nothing. And they're defeated and they have to go back. And so it went on all through his life. He was asked to do one thing after another. In 1838, one of his best converts, a man named John Coral, who was a very intelligent guy, wrote very well, wrote a history of the church to this point, says to Joseph, he says, you know, Joseph, you made a lot of promises. You've had a lot of revelations. You said a lot of things are going to happen. None of them have worked. You've failed in every respect. Here he is in jail with, you know, with his brethren. His people are fleeing. He's put his people through all these troubles. He's gathered them and then they're, they're driven away. Does he give up? No. Yeah. Goes, starts another city, sends out missionaries all over the world. So time after time, he's knocked down and he gets up and staggers on. I think that's just a remarkable achievement for anyone to have accomplished, and, but was essential for someone who's had this tough task of um, restoring the kingdom necessary to be able to restore the kingdom. How much do you think that the resilience as uh, exemplified by Joseph Smith was what the saints who came west sort of relied on, being able to look at his life and his example of resilience and, and be able to sort of pattern their life that way? Do you think it transcended? I, I think so. I think Brigham Young watched Joseph Smith very carefully, and he knew Joseph Smith had flaws. He said as much, but he saw how he kept going on, didn't give up under any circumstances. And Brigham Young had that same kind of grit. He was kind of, he was really a tough guy, but he just wouldn't give up. And think of that, hurting all those people, bringing them from across the seas, trying to find a home for them, trying to get everyone in line when they were, you know, they had ideas of their own and were not always compliant. So it's, it's part of our church and it's, it's actually built into our genes now. I mean, if someone said, I want you to discover every person who ever lived, every person who ever lived, and I want you to go through a ritual where they all will be sealed in their families. Who's good? What, what company would take that on? It would be a challenge for Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk 
it's impossible, especially when there's no compensation for it. You know, there's no product. What do you get out of it? Nothing. <laughs> so it's into us. We just don't give up with impossible tasks. It's pretty remarkable, which uh, I, I, I hear that. And, uh, and I think, man, am, am I being resilient in the times that are hard for me? Certainly for so many, 2020 was maybe the hardest year of their life. And are we able to draw on the strength of our ancestors? And people will talk about people on the other side of the veil. And, and just within our heritage, are we, are we able to be resilient? That's, that's a pretty impactful uh, example, which it makes me sad, though, because it leads us to number five, which means our conversation is almost done, Richard. Tell me what number five is. Number five is uh, we have to recognize we're a radical religion. I mean, especially nowadays, we try to get along well with the Catholics, the Protestants, the Jews, the Muslims, Buddhists, everybody. We're sort of part of the Christian tradition. And uh, they're all our brothers and sisters, and that's good. And I, I agree with that. I think that's the only way we can be influential is to uh, form alliances with people of goodwill everywhere. But in the Catholic Church, they categorize people as either people as they categorize religions as people who are variants of Christianity and those who are actually heretics. That is basically non-Christian, and Mormons are in the non-Christian category. They, they, and it's because, as the Catholics say in their statement on this subject, um, it's because we really work in an, another matrix. It's not really the same intellectual matrix, and at the heart of it is the idea that matter is eternal, that God did not create matter. It matters as eternal as he is. And he simply is a craftsman who puts together worlds, earths, and heavens, as we learn in chapter one of Moses. And that means God is not another being outside the universe creating it. He's inside the universe. We are one with him. And what leads us to the possibility that we can become God-like we can become gods ourselves because he's not a totally different species, a different order of being. That is deeply radical. And I don't think we've begun to work out the differences because we've been so eager to say, well, we're pretty much like everybody else. We're not like everybody else. We're a radical religion. And our theologians now are beginning to really explore that. And I, I think we'll find the, they love it. I love it. And because it, it leads to a new feeling about yourself and about God and about your place in the universe that I think is empowering. And uh, so I think we should embrace our radical nature, that, or our radical theology that Joseph provided us with. When people ask you, and I'm sure you do get asked, uh, and this is probably where we'll end this conversation, when people ask you about what your testimony about Joseph Smith is, or share your testimony, Richard Bushman. This is a, a man that you've studied for years on end. Um, people would say that, you know, you want an authority on Joseph Smith. It's, it's Richard Bushman, among a few others. Yeah. What, what, when people ask you, what is, your, what is your testimony about the prophet Joseph? What, what are you saying? Well, I certainly believe all the things. I believe in gold plates. I believe in Nephites. I believe in the, the Book of Mormon. But I have... Um, 
a different sense of what's important. We live in the scientific age. And what we want to know is, does something really exist and how does it work? We need evidence and proof of it. And that is what truth is. Is it real? I don't think that's the most important or the, or the only variety of truth. I believe in an ancient notion of truth. The truth is what enables you to live a good life. It's what Christ meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. life. You know, that isn't... I really exist, God really exists, and a science could prove it. That's saying, I'm going to give you a way to transcend who you are, to grow, to be filled with light. That, for me, is the real truth. What I really want to be is a good person. I really just want to be a good person. And I love the church because it's, I think it's had a huge impact in helping me be a good person. There's a story I've told many times, and I'll tell it one more because it meant a lot to me. When I was appointed to be uh, Howard W. Hunter visiting chair of Mormon studies at Claremont Graduate University, one of the theologians on the faculty, a Catholic, he was Korean, invited me to lunch the first semester. And there we, we hardly got uh, our orders in when uh, he turned to me. And I'm a scholar. They've hired me as a scholar. He says, Richard, how can you believe in Joseph Smith? just seemed impossible to believe in all the crazy stories that we hear about Joseph Smith and still be a rational person. And I said, just very bluntly and quickly, I said, Anselm, I find that when I live the Mormon way, I'm the kind of man I want to be. And that really sums up the heart of my testimony. I, it helps me to be the kind of man I want to be. Richard, I love being able to visit with you. The things that you've shared with us today and in the time that we chatted before have just been super impactful um, for me, for so many people that listen to this, to those that have uh, taken the opportunity to read your book, to read several things that you've written, to see all the times that you've spoken. You've been very generous with, with your knowledge and with your spirit and your testimony, and I can't thank you enough for uh, stepping in here and, and for visiting with me. A great pleasure, Richie. I enjoy talking to you. You're a very responsive and interesting person. Save me a seat. It's sure to be neat. On the back row, we read.